Welcome to this episode of The Antidote, a podcast that interviews women and gender marginalised writers in a place of personal significance to them. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and this is the sound of me recording the leaves on a plant on the living room windowsill in the apartment of this episode's guest. It looked way more poetic than it sounds, and I really thought I was being a cutting-edge audio journalist when I was rubbing my microphone on the leaves. You win some, you lose some, but this episode I won an interview with Sophia Manfredi. Sophia is a writer living in Brooklyn. She was a staff writer for Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj for the show's entire run and before that she wrote for Clickhole. She also likes tinned fish. I met Sophia at the 2018 Diverse as Fuck Festival in Chicago, which was co-directed by previous Antidote guest Millie Tabaras. At the time, Sophia was a writer for Clickhole, and part of the festival was dividing hundreds of applicants into Clickhole and Onion workshops in the Onion offices. And afterwards, everybody came together in a currently unthinkable style and had a pizza party. A few months later, Sophia landed a job with the Patriot Act and moved to New York. And on the evening, I climbed the stairs to her place, this time last year. She was just about to get the news that the Patriot Act had been extended for another season. Something that really surprised me in speaking with Sophia was how much she loved and missed her team at Clickhole in Chicago. A surprising thing to find surprising, but I had completely forgotten the kind of community and valuable relationships that can build up around a publication or a production. Maybe with like dry satirical sites, it's really hard to imagine that there's a rich beating heart of people who really care about each other. So it's a really interesting account to me. Sophia also has some really fantastic insights into how writing for a TV host works, what the role of a writer is on a late night show, and she has some fantastic views on who can even call themselves a comedy writer. But first, let's take a journey through time and space back to Sophia's childhood. Showbiz. (laughs) This is Showbiz, baby. Podcasting in your living room. Sophia... When did you start writing funny stuff? I I think I formally wrote a humorous article and put it on the internet uh, in college, mm-hmm. junior, senior year of college. Yeah, I think anything before then would have been contained in, you know, an essay for class or some, really probably something for school. I don't want to paint myself as like a class clown because I was just not at all. Um, so by funny, I mean like tiny little things that I got a little like kick out of, but, um, I guess the answer is college where I wrote something with the intent of it being only comedy or, or that was the main part of it, I guess, where I was like, I have a game that I want to play and I'm going to write it like this. So that's when you submitted a piece for the first time. When did you actually decide that you wanted to be funny in your writing? I think... That would have also been in college. Or that was when I had the one realization that I wanted to be a writer, or at least that I liked writing. Um, I had uh, when I took a leave of absence from college and just sort of had a lot more time than I would have liked to think about things and reflect and uh, just sort of 
choose how to spend my time in a way that only happens when you just have a shit ton of time. Um, and, and then realizing that my time gravitated in a certain direction. So realizing that I wanted to be a writer, uh, and then within that, realizing that comedy interested me, I think it's something that had always interested me and I didn't realize that it was an option or something that I was going to be anything other than like a fan of. Um, and I think just as after I had that realization when I was out of school, um, I think that started to trickle in more and more. And then when I came back to school, I remember having um, just sort of the thing where you you like you tell just a couple people like little little tiny snippets of what you actually want or are interested in or are thinking about um, and just kind of like see how it goes. And so I remember telling a couple of friends and one of them told me about uh you know, this publication to write for. And another one told me, I told a friend that my like wandering thoughts or the, this sort of dumb daydreams that I had were, <laughs> yeah, of doing comedy. And then she, well, she was like, you should pay attention to those. You should pay attention to your daydreams. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I think just a combination of things like that. Um, and having really, I think it was that time where I had out of college, I had a lot of time on my hands for this brief or for this, you know, half a year or so, and just realizing that it's something that I had always liked and that uh, it was, you know, an option to try to do it in earnest or to pursue it as a career path or even as an extracurricular path. Um, I think it was just having a lot of time to uh, think about what you want and realize what you want. And I had a hard reset, and then I just sort of clocked things that I had been feeling for a while or things that I had been interested in for a long time. What was it about comedy in particular that you liked? Oh, I don't know. I feel like my initial was like, it's fun, but that's not really, you know. That's totally allowed though. Like, why isn't that allowed? I don't know. I don't know because it's, there's, I feel like now we're in the era of like important comedy and like comedy with a message and I'm like, right, but like dumb comedy is so fun it really is and that's not to say like obviously you know satire and little comedy and all these things are are important and like are do all the things that people say that they can do um but I I think I liked comedy because it's fun and it makes you laugh and it's like a weird if you and someone that you met 10 seconds ago are both laughing really hard at the same thing it's like amazing and it like it and it could just be the stupidest thing in the world but you you feel like you just sort of got through to this, like, I don't know, this, like, little cove in someone. And that's the only part you know, but it does feel important. And you're like, oh, I have that, too. And and I don't know. I think there's something so, like, I don't know, it's like, unloaded about it. What do you remember laughing about when you were younger? Oh, um, probably a bunch of shit with my brother. Um, just sort of, like, being, I don't know, a little kid shit. We, we really liked the movie Rat Race. <laughs> It's a great I film. I watched Rat I mean, Race so many times, like way too many times. I can't believe it. Was that your childhood film? Because, you know, some people say, so in my family, the two films that we watched repeatedly for some reason were uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Shrek. Oh, Shrek is so good. Constantly. Well, they, Shrek's like a good movie. Like we just didn't have that many DVDs. I don't know why. So we just had DVDs that people gave us. And then one day someone gave us Rat Race. So it was in our collection of three so we just like watch rat race a ton, but not because <laughs> I don't know. That's not probably, that's probably not the right answer of things I laughed at when I was a kid. Um, that's a great answer. 
I laughed at, you know, I laughed at my brother. Um, I laughed at, at, at my dad, um, at my cousins, at my mom. Um, what do you laugh at now? I want to say both inside and outside of comedy because yeah. there's deliberate comedy and that's designed to make you laugh. Yeah. But also there are the things in the world that are kind of naturally funny. Yeah. That's a good, I mean, I think the thing that comes to mind is, is the, the stupid moments that you have with friends, um, and the sort of, yeah, I, th- I think the moments when I've left the hardest have, have certainly, have, it's not something where I'm like out in the world and I observe something and I think that's, you know, that's something that makes me laugh. It's, it's, you know, it's being around people, um, and realizing something really funny or it's hearing a friend say something that, um, is really funny or just having, I don't know a friend who's a total hypochondriac or a friend who is really defensive about the fact that she likes camping. And it's like, she's like, I love camping. Don't say it. Don't. And we're like, well, you obviously fucking hate camping. Like it's, I don't, that's, that's a really dumb joke to explain, but it's like things like that where that, um, <laughs> that are fun. Awesome. What about inside comedy? Oh, a lot of stuff. Um, I, let's say I recently watched Nathan for you for the first time, which I feel like I was late to the boat on. And that made me laugh very hard. I also laugh at, I mean, the big, the big ones, the crowd pleasers, Fleabag is unbelievable. I think it's like a sort of default, uh, favorite catastrophe also feels in that category. Um, I like, I like watching Kroll show sketches on YouTube. The ones that I know that I like, like I watched the whole show once and I'm like, okay, I know which ones to go back to. And they're so fun. So you started writing funny stuff deliberately in college. How did that become writing for ClickHole? I had wanted to write things in college sooner, but there wasn't an existing satirical publication or even just humorous publication. Um, there was a sketch group and an improv team, and that was sort of the extent of comedy on campus. And I tried out for the improv team, and I didn't get it my freshman year, and so I just assumed that I should be a biologist. And <laughs> so I started writing things and then started looking into starting a publication on campus since there wasn't one. And then I had a friend who did a bunch of arts stuff on campus and knew about this sort of like arts funding source that I guess other people didn't know about or just that no one, I don't know, everyone's in their own world and they're not thinking about this like random old art fund thing. So she told me about it and she was like, literally no one has applied for this. So just do it and you'll get money for your thing. And I was like, okay. Uh, so then that bit became a little more real because it was like, oh, I have money to make this an, an official thing. And, and I had two of my friends who like helped me uh, start it and were so fun. And it just, yeah, it started with you're just shooting shit with people that you like to hang out with. And then you sort of end up turning it into like a tangible thing for people other than three of you. What was it called? It was called Department of, and it does still exist. I am no longer like, I can't say that I look at it ever, but from what I understand, there are current students doing it which is great you created a legacy uh <laughs> sure yeah yes you did yeah i cried I, I made a website and then um other people wrote other things on it and uh it's still there and then what happened and then i was applying for a bunch of different jobs I mean, it was near graduation didn't know what i wanted to do so i applied for a bunch of shit um i constantly checked the onion Inc. jobs page just out of habit just muscle memory and then Clickle had a posting for editorial apprentice, which just means intern. And I applied 
blind and just like send in a resume. I think it was a resume and 10 headlines and a cover letter. And um, a few weeks later, they called me. And from what I understand, the thing that interested them on the resume was that I had like also I'd randomly studied primate stuff. I think they saw it and they were like, oh, that's weird. This is what we want to learn more about monkeys. And so then that's why they interviewed me. But I think I really lucked out and appealed to their primate, I don't know, interest. How far did you have to move to be able to set up working at Quick Hall? Like physically? Yeah. I moved from Durham, North Carolina to Chicago. A good chunk, I would yeah. say. But I, I had a little bit of time to do it because it was over the holidays. My parents helped me drive to Chicago and bring all my shit. But yeah, it was, it was a big move. When you first moved to Chicago... Mm. How did you set yourself up? I got very lucky in that a good friend of mine from school lived in an apartment with a spare room under the stairs that was walking distance from the new job that I had. And so I was like, yeah, great, I'll live with you. And so I set myself up in this apartment with a good friend um, and another girl who was really nice. And I think it helped to have somebody there uh, who was familiar with Chicago and who was familiar with me and to just sort of tell me like where the grocery store was and all that good stuff. But also Clickhole, I think is just the most warm, welcoming place. And I mean, it, it was to me just really, it was like, it's a small enough group of people who are all sort of, you know, they were a little older than me that it was like exciting that they had an intern to even do stuff. So they were all just really nice to me because well, because they're all very nice people, but I didn't feel like the piece of shit intern who like, has to go get coffee with people. They were really nice from day one. But um, I, I set up by having the logistics of my living situation weirdly worked out even before I got there. And then once that was done, I went to work and everyone was incredibly nice. So it was just way smoother than it could have been. Subsequent to that, mm -hmm. you landed a job at the Patriot Act. Were you actively sending out packets or how did you come across that job? No, I got an email from someone affiliated with Patriot Act. They sent me the packet and I think it was due like a week later or something, but I got an email that I think had been passed along by someone who was higher up at Onion Inc. who had talked to one of the people who's starting to get Patriot Act off the ground. She, I believe, passed along some email addresses to them to send packets to, but I was definitely no expert in packets and hadn't gotten one before and was sort of scared shitless of it. But I, I got an email, basically another, I don't know. It's, it's, it's another lucky thing for sure. Um, it feels like people were in the right place at the right time. You also worked really hard and formed really important relationships that led to an opportunity becoming available. Being in the right place at the right time also means that you had to have worked well with people to be recommended and you had to have had really good networks and really good connections with people. And sure, like you wrote a packet and you hadn't done that before, but the fact that your packet was chosen wasn't some weird accident. And I think, yeah, I just, I don't know, I've been hearing right place at the right time a lot, and I'm like, yeah, but also you're smart. Okay. <laughs> Do you know Thank what you. I mean? That's like incredibly kind. <laughs> no, yeah, I, th I think you're right that, like, you know, your interactions with people and your relationships with people matter. Uh, not yes, not in like a nepotistic way or, or the version of that that people are rightfully skeptical of. Um, but the version of it where you're not an asshole and you are agreeable to work with other people is super important. Yeah, I think, I think not being an asshole goes a, a long way. 
what did you do to prepare your packet, seeing as you hadn't done something like that before? Well, it was it was really specific to what would be the Patriot Act format. And it was really clearly laid out because it was like, it involved like news footage and things like that, where it was like, there had to be really specific formatting to it, even to just have it be uniform across the application. So it, it felt like a homework assignment, not in like a, not in a boring way or in a childlike way, but in like a, oh, this is, this is like a project. I have the instruction page and I have the due date and I have to just execute this thing and follow the directions. There was like comfort in that because there were just really specific parameters to hit because it's a show with a really specific format. I felt like I was working within confines that had been made clear of like, okay, this is going to be in the voice of the host and he's going to be talking about this topic and I need to include X, Y, and Z. Um, so luckily I, and I, I don't know a ton about other packets, but, um, it was good to have just really explicit instruction. Looking back on that packet and now knowing the work that you do for the show, what has changed? I mean, I think you learn, or I I learned how he speaks more. And I think just being around somebody and seeing other episodes of the show and realizing what issues are most important to them and what they talk about when they're not in the air is like, oh, you just learn a little bit better how to write for them or how to um, do things that are interesting to them. Um, So I would say what I write now just is more accurate to what Hassan sounds like. And I think I know more the jokes that he and the head writer and the showrunner are interested in, or at least I can guess a little better. It's definitely, you know, the batting average definitely varies, but I I think that's, I think is realizing that I'm obviously writing for a show, but I'm also writing for a person who has an existing and very like him voice and has an existing body of work and existing like, you know, set of, of issues that he cares about and that makes sense for him to talk about specifically. Um, I think realizing that this was a, that this in moments is like, yeah, this hinges on like a a person and you have to write for him. And how long did you have to move from Chicago to New York for your new job? Maybe like 10 days. It was a little bit of a shit show. It was a huge shit show, but it worked. Um, And it feels like a long time ago. And it was so fucking hot when I moved here. It was like gross New York. But yeah, it's, it's so odd to think about now. Uh, I, I moved here very fast and, and I lived in an Airbnb for a little bit. And then I miraculously found a place that I liked. And then just like little by little, it's like, okay, first the match is on the floor and then you get a bed frame. And then like you finally put photos up on the wall. And then it's like, oh, eventually I built a routine. But it felt like I was like triaging for a hot second of just figuring out how to live here. How did you manage the emotional work of also starting a new job and having to make friends and all those other things. I think the thing that upset me the most or the thing that was the hardest is that I feel like I didn't really have time to properly mourn like my time at ClickHole or my people at ClickHole or my people in Chicago or my whole life in Chicago. Chicago was the best. It's just a really like welcoming place to live and you feel uh, you feel like you're supposed to be there I think a lot faster than you feel that way in New York where a lot of times you feel like you could just re- be replaced with literally anybody else and like nothing would change. I think Chicago dispels that a little bit faster. Now now New York is all good, but yeah, I think emotionally like I can't say enough how big the spot in my heart for Clickhole is. Like 
those people, they like those people and the things that they wrote and just sort of like the environment that they built, they're just the funniest and the nicest and the most unique. And, and I think I, I remember on my, my last day at Clickle, I like wrote down the things that people had said that made me that like mattered to me a lot. And then like a month after moving to New York is when I looked at them and I was like, oh, okay, this is what this means to me. And like, this is someone I should reach out to for this. And like, it was kind of like I was recording things because I knew that they meant a lot to me, but I didn't really know how to deal with that because I had to put all my shit in boxes. And then like, once I got to New York, I had sort of a paper trail to be like, oh, wow, I'm so happy that I wrote this down. Or like, that's a period of my life that is just going to be so special to me forever. And they just like taught me comedy. And yeah, so I think emotionally I went into as much of a logistical mode as I can get to, which is not a lot. Like I'm a deeply sentimental person to just a very flawed point. But I kind of tried to do that and then dredge up the sentimental parts again after I got here and try to like flesh them out. There, I mean, I we there was like goodbye drinks and everyone was... um. Like when you leave Clickle, they make a front page and print it out for you of like the headlines that, that were yours or like some that were, that you may have pitched in the room that everyone hated, but it was like a thing. And all the header images would be like photos of you. And there were these emotional things and there were emotional moments. I don't want to make it seem like I was a robot for my last week, but I specifically personally require like a lot of bandwidth to, for how much emotion I have. So I feel like I did some when it was happening and some later and just sort of realizing how familiar and at home I had felt in Chicago and at Clickhole uh, when I moved here. Hey, it's Rosie and it's time for The Dose, a segment where a comedy writer talks up the things they're enjoying at the moment to thrive at this time in history. This episode's special guest is Tiffany Midge. Tiffany is a citizen of the Standing Rock Nation and was raised by wolves in the Pacific Northwest. Her book, Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's, was a Washington State Book Award nominee. She is the recipient of a 2019 Pushcart Prize, an Eliza So Fellowship, and a Simon Public Humanities Fellowship. She's published work in World Literature Today, McSweeney's, Waxwing, Moss, The Offing, The Belladonna, and many, many more. She aspires to be the inaugural Distinguished Writer in Residence for Seattle Space Needle, which, Tiffany, I actually really think you should do and push for and just make happen, and considers her contribution to humanity to be her sparkly personality. Tiffany, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It is such a joy to have you. What would be your highbrow recommendation for what you're consuming, reading, watching, doing at the moment? Well, I actually wrote a list and highbrow recommendations, um, at least for the things that I'm reading right now, would be periodicals and various literary journals. For the most part, I haven't been able to read novels in the last few months and I've subscribed to various literary journals and periodicals because that way I can just sort of dip in. So the things that I'm reading are the Pushcart Prize anthologies. They're actually really stunning essays in them and I'm reading Creative Nonfiction which is a literary magazine and there's a Pacific Northwest literary journal called Moss. And then I was sent these amazing travel guides called Wild Sim Field Guides. Um, and I'm reading Seattle, California, and Portland. And they're very unusual and very different than what you would expect from a travel guide. They're sort of like full of all these literary tidbits and essays and just these short little things and illustrations. 
and they're really small. They're like small enough to fit in your pocket. So I suppose those would basically be <laughs> my my high brows. And low brows, I can't really think of any low brow ones right now. Um, <laughs> You're just a high brow person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so far as the grading scale, I suppose. I, I imagine that a high brow would be more like, you know, this like a must read novel or something like that. But I just haven't been able to really get into them. I have, I've dipped into like several of them that haven't really stuck with anything. I just really like the periodicals. Are there any essays in the Pushcart Prize collection so far that you've you've just really loved? I would tell you exactly what I read if I actually had the title of them in front of me because I only remember like the impressions that I had. There is one about bathing that just had this historical survey of all the different types of bathing throughout history and then just like the present things also and it was really fascinating. I don't mean like bathing, like taking a shower. I mean like public baths. I should, you know, clarify that. Yeah, public baths, public bathing. And um, my boyfriend reads Mad Magazine. I suppose one could say that's lowbrow, except for that's kind of like the Bible for comedy writers. I mean, that's sort of like what they were all cut their teeth on. Like as kids, we just read Mad Magazine. That would be maybe lowbrow, but not really. <laughs> what is lowbrow? Nothing is lowbrow. I know, exactly. Like it all works, especially if you're a pop culture junkie. Some people that I did my readings, I had like one or two people tell me that they didn't understand any of my books or my, my stories because I put so many popular culture references in it. Um, so in a sense, that's kind of lowbrow, but it's also just like major food for, you know, for people that are in comedy. If you if you don't do a lot of popular culture and don't watch a lot of television and <laughs> keep up with what the Kardashians are doing, then you're just going to be left out of a lot of rich cultural humor. Also, you'll be left out of what's happening on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. <laughs> that's devastating. <laughs> Oh, for true, for true. Finally, do you have or what is your wild card recommendation? For some reason, I've been very obsessed lately with reboots of like other television shows. So I tell you that I like stay up all night watching television. I'm just like watching these like, you know, reboots and like Netflix released Daphne Demir's Rebecca. And that was enthralling, of course. And uh, there's also reboots that I've been really into from Howard's End. There was a BBC series that I watched that I absolutely loved. And then Rosemary's Baby, which took place in Paris in this reboot. And then Sense and Sensibility, the BBC version, the 2008 version. And I don't know, there's just something about the reboots because you get to extend those stories that you just absolutely love. And sometimes they do them terribly, but I've been really lucky in seeing the ones that have done just a really great job, you know? Well, sometimes you're watching something and you're like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the right thing that's, you know, like trying to try to get over the fact of watching Howard's End without, you know, Helen Bonham Carter, you know, or Emma Thompson. It's just like really hard to beat that. But it's just also at the same time really fascinating. And I think there's way, way, way too many reboots of Little Women. I think they need to just stop with the Little Women reboots. <laughs> um, I'm done. I'm so done with that one. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Little Women reboot? <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to watch the Susan Sarandon. I tend to watch that one a lot more. There's just, I mean, I liked that one the best, I think. Or the Katherine Hepburn one. 
know, because it's classic. But you have to love, love, love the story, you know, first. And I should at some point read all of the books. Most people have read all of the books, all of those things that I've I've only read Howard's End, but everybody's read, you know, all of these classic Jane Austen books and all of that. And I just, I never have, which I should. It's terrible, right? I I'm feel like once you've watched so many interpretations, you kind of get a gist. <laughs> I know, but I feel like a Philistine, you know, for not having read any of those, considering I majored in English, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's my confession. It's my dirty little secret. <laughs> well, I'll make sure it stays in the second. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we finish, are there any other recommendations you'd like to make? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For some reason, Oprah included something that's called seven books that will see you through our troubling times list it's a wonderful 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 list one of them was um joy harjo's anthology the norton anthology of native poetry which i happen to be on the editorial team they shared like a very large editorial team and um I was lucky enough to be able to work with, you know, the mountain region. And it, it was extraordinary to me that, you know, Oprah has this on her list and that she's promoting this book and I have poems in it. And it's just amazing to me, very surreal. And I just received that news yesterday. So and to just see that being circulated around the world is just awesome. It's called um, When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. And it's a Norton anthology of native poetry. What are you working on at the moment? What are you doing? Dribs and drabs. <laughs> Bits and blobs. Um, bips and bobs, blibs and... <laughs> I'm trying to get that right. I was asking my boyfriend <laughs> earlier, like, what is that? Bits and bits and blobs. And then I was thinking, well, that would make a wonderful name for a blog. Bits and blogs. Somebody's probably already done it. But yeah, just that's basically writing bits and blobs, drips and drabs, keeping up with the internet <laughs> um, and publishing this and that here and there. And for me, you know, I don't have much of a social life to begin with. Instead of doing, you know, going around and going to universities and things, I'm, you know, doing these uh, presentations online now for Zoom. And I'm not sure that I've really gotten my stride insofar as that quite yet. But practicing that, um, it takes up some of my time to do that. Going for walks while we still have some of this autumn leaf stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to enjoy uh, at least a week or more of, of the autumn. We had snow a week ago, which was just ridiculous. It's still on the ground. And all the tree branches fell down all over town and all the lights went out because the branches already had leaves on them. So it just weighed them down extra. Yeah. Anemonium around here, but the leaves are still out, so that's good. So I at least have those autumn leaves and we can enjoy them like almost through November. Then it's just nice to have that long extended sense of autumn with the pretty leaves and everything being ablaze outside. I love that. Yeah, so trying to go for walks and reading and writing and can't say it's terribly exciting, but nobody's gotten out the firearms, so we're doing pretty good, I think. <laughs> That was a series of recommendations from Tiffany Midge. Now, the pushcart essay that Tiffany mentioned is titled Monsters by Margaret Wardlaw, and you can find a link to it as well as Oprah's recommendation and a link to Tiffany's latest publication in When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, and her book Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's, as well as information about all the guests and artists on this show in the show notes for this episode. 
back to Sophia Manfredi's Brooklyn living room, where we're talking about writing on the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. How did you or did you prepare yourself for what learning a host's voice would be like and learning to work with a new table of writers? The biggest way to learn was I turned in the first script and, and it was like not used. I'm like, oh yeah. Now I look at it and I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> that is like an incorrect answer to a question. And that's fine. Like no one judgment. Like it was like the first one. That's how they went. Um, yeah. I mean, working with a new table writer is interesting because Clickhole was very, parts of it were really collaborative. Like literally everyone sitting around a table, brainstorming, riffing with each other. Like it's, it's a really kind of just open thing. And Patriot Act is a little bit different in that like the idea for an episode has to have like a really crucial research component. Like, you know, we're not in a room sitting on a table coming up with like episode ideas. When you work with someone at Patriot Act, it's usually you're all individually in your own space contributing to like a common Google Doc. Or you might be usually paired up or working in groups of three over the course of like a month or so working out an episode. I think the the ways that writers work together are really different at ClickHole than they were at Patriot Act. Um, and so it didn't really feel like I was doing the same process and had subbed in a new group of people. It felt like I was just sort of doing a totally new thing. Um, and also just because the content of what it is is so insanely different. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just like one day at a time. And I knew one of the other writers at Patriot Act beforehand. So it was good to just have someone who already knew how I was like, okay, you already think I'm funny. So just walking to a place and being like, no, everyone hates me. Like, I'm not supposed to be here. No one thinks funny. I'm like, okay, wait, no, no, he does because I know him. So it's like having that person is definitely very helpful. So you took a pretty traditional route to doing comedy in New York, which is kind of by way of Chicago. Mm. How did the other Patriot Act writers come to the show? Was it a similar avenue or have you noticed that people do pretty different things to end up in I the show. I would say pretty different. There were maybe like three other people who had worked in TV before. One of them for, for like quite a long time. A couple of us were new. A chunk of people had worked in TV before. And a chunk of people were stand-ups. And had um, either gotten attention that way or representation that way or connections that way to, to end up with the packet. So it was, yeah, it was a combination of, of kind of like writers by trade and then performers which, you know, Hassan is a stand-up and like stand-up is very much the, like his format and the thing he is known for and the thing he has done for a long time. So it made sense to strike that balance, I think, when they're making the stuff. How does putting a show together work as a team of writers? There are two people assigned to an episode usually, and you'll each be given a bunch of research and footage. Um, the research and footage departments are both amazing and they do a shit ton of work and just kind of like put together all these incredible resources. And then you each sort of write separate drafts. Um, and then once that's done, the process between those two separate drafts and the episode is just like a series of merging and editing and getting notes from the head writer or the showrunner, Hassan, and, uh, and just like refining, refining, refining. But, and then that whole process is happening together. Like you consume all the information and write your own draft. And then after that point, you and that person are tackling notes and adding in you know this footage or adding in this part of the argument or things like that um yeah there aren't there aren't too many moments where it's like the room together trying to come up with something which is kind of a bummer because that's the fun part but it's also like a show that is super based on research um in a way that 
sometimes the notes are just like argumentative. Like it's like, Oh, we have to like make this tighter, like make this point clear so that this other point isn't coming out of the wherever for people. Um, what is the most fun you've had on a piece or a story? I think the most fun is when, so you have a morning deadline and you're there very late and, if you're working with the person, I guess this it doesn't really count as like working on the piece, but really just like fucking around with another writer, I think is really fun. I don't know if this is fun, but I, I wrote a student loans episode with one of the writers and we both, we stayed up very, very late doing a part of the assignment. And then we, we like split an Uber back to the same neighborhood that we live in. And I remember going through Times Square and it was totally empty and it was snowing and it felt like a freaky, just like post-apocalyptic thing that like was very unsettling. But we like, yeah, we had stayed up very, very late doing uh, fun student loan things and writing a draft. And then the next day there was an interview with someone who had worked for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, basically in, in protecting student borrowers. And we were interviewing him and the room was kind of hot. And for some reason, there were no chairs for us. So we were just kind of standing in the back, just like truly about to collapse just because we were dumb idiots who didn't sleep. And we were just like watching what is an important interview about student loan stuff. But it was just kind of like, it was so long and hot. And I was like, if this isn't done, I will just die. I don't know if I like that story. Well, it sounds know. like it's about camaraderie it's about suffering through stuff together for something that you love yeah it's definitely about suffering through stuff um (laughs) (laughs) it's the the moments that are the most fun is when you are working with someone and you are both kind of like at the same point and you have the same frustrations and you're finding the same things funny and and you're just in sort of like a delusional moment or you write things in the script that you know will never ever make it in in a million years or just creating new characters um like different hosts to take the show is like a very fun game to play and yeah I think that's it is sort of like the good thing about it being you are paired up in groups of two is that like you really get in the trenches with one person uh and that is (laughs) that's just a blast um I was talking to a friend of mine recently about like what makes a friend. Mm. And we were talking about the fact that we like to go hiking together. And the reason why we like to hike together is because we're having a shared experience. Yeah. And it sounds like what you are describing is exactly an adventure. You're having a shared experience. I, yeah. I feel like camaraderie is definitely um, the thing that's really important to me about this show. And, and whenever it's, it's over, or when we're gone or whatever, I'll be really happy that I worked on Patriot Act. I will be really grateful to my bosses there. But the thing that I'll be most excited about and the thing that I will try to like hold on to are the relationships with the other writers just because you, you're just spending so much fucking time together. And it's, it's just fun. It's just really fun to have that shared experience. What's been the biggest surprise about pursuing a career as a comedy writer? Uh, I think the, the fact that it is a job in comedy writing is also a job and that even if you care about it and even if it's fun by definition or has funny elements by definition um it is also a thing to have boundaries from and a thing to make space for yourself outside of and this is i spend all my time in patriot act and i spent all my time at click hole and like that was my social group and like i i'm not that qualified to say that just because i generally let my career become my whole life i, I don't regret that because i love those people so much but i should probably stop And I think the fact that it's 
a job that you want a lot or a job that is, um, yeah, fun. People think it's fun and it is fun and it's kind of fun by definition. Um, it's still like you can't get everything from it or maybe some people can, I cannot. Feeding into the narrative though, that writing is an amazing drug that we should all just take all the time. How how does it feel to write for you? For like one thing in particular or just in general? I think in general, yeah, just the act of writing. And I realize that writing itself elicits lots of different emotions, but Mm. what are the key feelings that come up when you're sitting down? I think honesty and a level of vulnerability, not necessarily that you're writing confessionally, but I think there are like avenues that you go down when you're writing that you don't go down, certainly when you're not thinking by yourself, or at least for me, um, and maybe not even when you're in conversation. I think there, for me, I like that I just seem to access like a slightly different part of me, or maybe a part that's like kind of further inside, you know? I'm like, oh, I didn't even know I thought this, but I do because I just wrote it. And now that I read it, I'm like, that's correct. Yeah. But it, it feels like a different access point to things that you're thinking or things or ways that you feel about things. And that, yeah, I think it's something that, that, that doesn't only apply to things like journaling, which I think is kind of obvious that it's like a very, something that you reflect during and something that you learn about yourself during and something where you like reach new conclusions. But writing feels like very personal and very impersonal at the same time I think when you're not doing something like journaling when you're just like writing a comedy or essay or whatever it's nice to write something to be like this specifically came from me and it's also not about me it's just this thing that I've created and it's like this 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 weird access point that I don't really have another way of getting to we don't really have a word for that yeah I'm I'm just rambled a long time no but I know what you mean there's something where I'm like, this is very, there's something very personal about this, but I also, it doesn't feel like I'm sharing something about myself. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's just fun to sort of like see what you can make with like all the different threads that you have and know that it's not, that only you could have made it, but that it's not, it exists on its own. But it's not yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I feel. What do you have coming up in the future inside or outside of Patriot Act that is a project that you're working on and what do you need to do the next bit of it? That is a good question Um, and one that sort of puts a fire into my ass because I think something that I've done a bad job of while being in New York and while being at Patriot Act is doing other projects or even thinking about what I would want other projects to be. Um, and now that I said it out loud, I'm so embarrassed about it, but you've been working your butt <laughs> off in a new job. Like you have honestly just described to us the challenges of coming here and being kind to yourself about it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. This is a very therapeutic <laughs> conversation. This is actually a secret therapy show. <laughs> <laughs> I think secret therapy would be a hit of a podcast. You'd have to do the whole thing before you released any of it. Yeah. Which is weirdly what I'm doing now. Honestly, go for it. If you want to give me, you know, medication, do whatever. Um, I'm doing the classic comedy thing of writing a pilot. Um, And that's sort of a thing that is like actively, if I'm not working on, I'm at least thinking about working on. Um, And then the things that are on the sort of like second tier back burner um, are maybe some things that I would like to turn into essays but I'm so out of my depth on that. 
and like haven't really done it since like clickle basically um and so that's something that I would like to wade back into and what do you need to do that probably just a little bit more courage than what I have um and you know advice and encouragement or at least people that I can ask or say like how how the fuck did you do this and I think time right time feels like the resource that fucking decides it all so it's easy to put things off for a long time but time speaking of time if you could go back and talk to Sophia when you were deciding to start writing comedy that's so fun what would you tell her I love this question. I think one of the things I would say is just the thing my friend told me where she was like, pay attention to your daydreams. And I don't know. I think everybody, and this applies to a lot of things outside of comedy, of course, but everybody, I think people have an idea of who they expect to write comedy um, or who they expect to make them laugh. And I think I would have just said, like, you are allowed to try to do this. First of all, literally because no one fucking cares. Second of all, like, you're just allowed to try it. There's no... Yeah, it's legitimate for you to try to do this. And the more that you kind of get yourself to be on the hook for things in a legitimate way, like tell someone that you'll write something for them or tell someone that you're going to show up somewhere and try a mic or whatever. Like, because I know myself and I know that if I am leaving it up to myself, I might never do it. And so I guess that would be the practical advice of like, make yourself accountable to other people. Um, but also, yeah, it's not that other people are like supposed to be comedians more than you. It's not as prescribed as you think it is, is what I meant to say. Sophia, thank you so much. Thank you. Should I ask you any questions? No. Okay. I don't know how these work. (laughs) Yes, that was the warm up, And now (laughs) now it's my turn. (laughs) You interview me. It's a reverse therapy show. Oh, right. I reveal things casually about my life during the interview. And then I flip the table and I say analyze me therapy show 2.0 yeah again would do great (laughs) (laughs) then i left sophia's apartment and returned to the nighttime streets of brooklyn but since i spoke to sophia a year ago quite a bit has changed in her life there has been a pandemic but also the patriot act has ended so i called her last week and we caught up about what she's up to and i sent her the original audio from our interview and she had some stuff to say about it so you listen to the audio and it sounded like a long time ago yes it did (laughs) what sounded like a long time ago about it I think it sounded like a long time ago to be in the thick of Patriot Act even think about over this you know the anecdote where I Times Square was empty at night and I thought that that was such a you know a cool thing or a beautiful maybe beautiful isn't the right word you know not a negative moment at all now I'm like oh Times Square has been empty for a different reason you know for a lot of the year and it's like that that sort of like empty New York landscapes is no longer a fun thing. I think other than that, I was just listening to some of the things I said and I was like, oh, what? That doesn't make any sense. That thing about my friend hating camping and that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Like that's so, I I don't know. I was just like, man, I kind of, I didn't give great examples of stuff. But no, I I think it, it mostly felt like a long time ago to just have it be in a busy period of time, really. Or busy in in a different way that is specific to not a pandemic. How have the last 12 months been for you? Uh, they've been, you know, they've been a ride. I, I think, uh, I've been in New York for the whole time, say for a few driving trips to, to Pennsylvania. Um, and, and other than that, I've been hanging out in, in Brooklyn and, um, 
I live by myself. So it's been a lot of alone time, particularly in the first few months of the pandemic when it was like really nobody saw anybody even outside, even when, you know, it was just like, there was, there was so much uncertainty on how to safely see people that nobody saw anybody, which makes sense. I wasn't like really trying to hang with people, but I would say the last 12 months have been a, a lot of alone time uh, and a lot of time walking around Prospect Park and walking around my neighborhood and, and just sort of, you know, it, kind of that sense of getting used to it, but also hoping to not get used to it as things get worse because you want to stay on your toes and keep all your careful habits and, you know, being worried about the people you care about and, and also, you know, still making ways to, uh, to interact with people and to be around the people you care about. I've been also definitely uh, quite lucky and I, I haven't gotten sick and, the, you know, my family hasn't gotten sick and the people I know have gotten sick have all gotten better. So it's, it's just been uh, a lot of time with me in New York. <laughs> Everything before then uh, was, was much closer to what I said. The first time we talked of like, yeah, Patriot Act and um, hanging out a lot with people from Patriot Act and, and just being a, a busy working person who, uh, you know, who's, sometimes overwhelmed by work and the city and all these things that are just like not really overwhelming anymore because they, there's not an option for them to be. You mentioned that the Patriot Act has ended now and that also coincided with COVID. And so you kind of went into this period of really intense isolation. What has comedy writing become for you over this time? That is a good question. Um, so I should first say that we did do some Patriot Act in quarantine. I kind of mashed together the whole timeline, but uh, from March through June, we were working remotely and Hassan was recording on a green screen with just our showrunner. So it was, I wasn't in the writer's room, I was interacting with the writers, but uh, we were at Google Docs together and that kind of thing. So I did have a few months of, of at least that. I think since then, comedy writing has been... Um, I don't know. I mean, there's certainly just been less of it. Like I've written a little bit of my own stuff and, um, kind of looked through other projects that I had half started at different points. Um, but it, it feels less, well, certainly a lot less collaborative because everything I'm doing is just me. Um, and it's a lot less kind of structured and, um, it feels like it, it's all, uh, it's difficult to measure things and have them be in concrete pieces of, of progress or, or even concrete chapters of time or um I think comedy writing has become a less collaborative thing um and a less formalized thing but in the moments where I have felt excited or felt motivated to to write something that was my own those moments were cool and you know those moments definitely came from were a byproduct of just having a so much time on my hands. So I would say overall, I don't know. I like comedy writing less now because I miss working with people and bouncing stuff off of people and, uh, and being around people. But I mean, there's definitely a ton more freedom in, in what you can actually write. And I know that gets into the whole trap of, you know, Shakespeare wrote whatever in quarantine. Like, it's like, I, I have not been really productive at all, but the, the little that I have gotten done has been like, oh no, you know, I did decide everything about this, um, which it, it just isn't what happens at any workplace. So that was different. Has what you find funny changed at all as well? I don't think so. I think the first time we talked, uh, I talked about how, I don't know if it's a byproduct of the election too, but I think uh, apolitical things are 
funny to me. And again, not that I don't like consume political comedy or respect the people who do it or anything like that. Um, but like my, my more recent quarantine watch has been earlier seasons of the Simpsons, which is like, just not, uh, I mean, there's, there's like, or like social commentary in the Simpsons or whatever, but like I, the things I'm really laughing at are the things that like grandpa does or like Mr. Burns does or these things that are like, I don't know. I'm finding myself more drawn to that kind of comedy. So I don't, I don't, I think I probably find the same things funny. I think I'm focusing on a sillier subset of those things. This period in history is embedded with necessary financial insecurity and career insecurity for a range of intersecting reasons. And I'm really interested to know how you have felt about not having a job in comedy during this time and taking on comedy as like a personal thing that you're doing as writing and how you feel about that. Because you mentioned that there is this kind of pandemic pressure that's like, oh, well, now I'm by myself in my apartment. I'll be the most productive I've ever been and it will be perfect. But realistically, actually, this is a very stressful event for a range of reasons. And that kind of sits in this opposition to I think a very common anxiety about like having enough work as a comedy writer like making an income as a comedy writer how have you managed that is that something you've experienced or felt and what has that looked like for you and what have you decided based on that I act differently when I'm not getting a paycheck than when I am but I definitely feel very privileged for the amount of time I got a paycheck from Patriot Act and the, and the consistency with which I did. And um, that definitely, I, I think, afforded me a level of security that I'm very grateful for right now. That said, I don't know. I like, you know, I'm not sure when the next job will be for, I mean, really for pandemic reasons, but just for like general entertainment reasons, things come and go. And, and you're always kind of looking for the next project. And I think two straight years at Patriot Act was like a long time by at least some TV standards. So I think part of that overlap with the pandemic, but I'm also aware of like, oh, I would, you know, there are moments where you are figuring out the next thing, even in a normal period of time, uh, or in, yeah, in a non-pandemic time. As far as having comedy writing be my job as opposed to, I mean, but even when I'm doing it on my own time, I'm still doing it as like, you know, in hopes of getting the next thing. The things that I'm really doing on my own, my own time that I'm like, this is not related to TV. And, you know, this is not a pilot. This is not a packet, whatever. Those things are not comedy. I think like the, those ideas tumbling around, they are also like, not really what I'm working on. Like I just sort of entertain them in my head of like, Oh, I would like to do this eventually, but I'm not really sitting down and like typing away at them. But I think it probably changes. I, I yeah, I think I was very lucky to be a Patriot Act for so long. And I think this sort of just like makes my expectations for future career moves a little bit more realistic of like, oh, there will be downtime in between, you know, pandemic or not. Um, they're you, of just trying to figure out the next thing and, and trying to sell the next thing and, um, you know, plan out your next moves. I think I went to ClickHole and I was there for almost three years and then I came to Patriot and I was there for two. And I just like, and I think I realized now, oh, it's usually just the, the lily pads are like a lot closer together like you're just moving around them more um and so I'm kind of trying to get more used to that but I definitely I feel pretty lucky to have gone into it having had like a longer term job 
for into the first like three months of the pandemic. But yeah, I, I really, I truly don't know what's next. So there is this sense of like, oh, I, I really don't know. And that's not really happened before where I've had an extended period of time of like, I, I don't know. How do you <laughs> feel about that? Uh, a little scared and a little bit kind of just not used to it. Like I, I, I've not had this kind of routine before. I have not had this much free time since I think, you know, fourth grade, probably <laughs> like even there's no like activities. There's no things anybody's making me do. So I think just sort of, I've had to get a lot better at structuring my own time and at motivating myself and at, you know, not filling the day with like small little tasks out of fear of doing something bigger or harder. Um, I'm someone who, if I'm, you know, if I'm afraid to finish an outline I've been working on, I will instead like clean the baseboards and be like, well, I stood now I, it's late and I have to go to bed, but it, I, I cleaned the baseboards because I was afraid of doing the other thing. And I did that for like three months of quarantine. <laughs> and so I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge that and then check it and then do the thing that's a little bit scarier. That was an interview with comedy writer Sophia Manfredi. I am so grateful for Sophia's time, and I'm particularly grateful that she allowed us to, as they say in the business world, circle back so that we could reflect on the year that has happened. And here's this episode's reading of a comedy piece featured on the Belladonna website. I'm sorry, I can no longer attend the function. Written by Shelby Slower. Read by Eva Gilliam. Hello, my dear friend. I hope you're well. Are you well? I hope you are. You've always been a dear friend. If you're hearing this, it is because, regrettably, I cannot attend tonight's function after all. I'm so sorry. I wanted so badly to attend the function. I set aside time to attend the function. I even picked out an outfit for the function. But it would appear that I am very busy with many things and work and work things, among other things. So I must rescind my RSVP to the function. How badly I wanted to attend said function. I love a good function, one that takes place in a large room with a large amount of people and a large amount of people I don't know. And therefore a large amount of people for me to meet. I love meeting new people. It's one of my favorite things, and it is, unfortunately, one of the reasons why we have not been able to hang out in so long, because I'm spending so much time meeting new people. In fact, that's the reason I cannot attend the function tonight, because I had forgotten I was supposed to spend time with a new person, which I love doing. And what's that? Oh, yes, I almost forgot my work things. I'm so busy with functions, I can't even keep my functions in line. Guess I'll have to cancel my plans to spend time with that new person so I can catch up on my work things. I'm sorry. This means I can't attend your function. You'd be surprised. Working in the human resources office of a theme park requires a lot of coming into the office on Saturday nights. Not only Saturday nights, but Sunday nights and also late nights from Monday to Friday. I basically have no time for functions, so don't even worry about inviting me to the next one. In fact, I can reach out to you if I'm ever able to attend a function, which I probably won't be because, as I mentioned, I'm very busy. All work and no play. Funny for a girl who works at a theme park, am I right? 
That would have been one of the many jokes I would have told had I been able to attend your function. I am ever so sorry I cannot. Along with some witty one-liners, had I been able to present at tonight's function, though I must be absent for myriad reasons, I apologize. I would have had some great stories to tell, like the time when I was at work and was so busy because my job entails a lot of busy work. I almost thought I would never get home that night because of how much work I had to do. Funny for a girl who works at a theme park, am I right? Oops, I already told that joke, didn't I? It all just goes to show how packed my schedule is, and therefore how frazzled I am, and therefore how impossible it is for me to go to tonight's function. Please forgive me. Don't even get me started on the outfit I would have worn to the function tonight had I been at the function tonight. Don't even get me started. Don't do it. Don't. (laughs) Phew. I would have loved to attend tonight's function, but I'm also developing a cough, (coughs) which I would hate to attend a function with a cough, even if I did have time, which I still don't, because it would inhibit everyone else's enjoyment of the function. I attend the function with a cough. My cough spreads to everyone else. Everyone else is then coughing at once. No one can hear the music because there is too much coughing. The only thing worse than a large party where everyone is sick is me. Sick. Having to be at work for the next 11 to 12 hours or maybe even 3 to 4 days. Man, I'm just so busy. I hope that though I am unable to attend tonight's function, we will be able to remain dear friends. Better yet, since I'm so busy and therefore unable to attend this and all future functions, why don't we just try Skyping sometime? Or being pen pals? Or just reminiscing on the friendship we once knew? I'll pencil that in for next week. Thanks for being so understanding. I always knew you were a dear friend. Eva Gilliam is an American multimedia journalist, improviser and teacher of improv living in South Africa. She performs with the Longshots Improv Troupe in Cape Town and is founder and artistic director of the Mama City Improv Festival in Cape Town. Shelby Slower is a writer and comedian who has been described as a modern-day Shelby Slower. She contributes to Clickhole and Reductress and has been featured on Vulture for her tweets as part of their Follow Friday column. You can follow her on Twitter at Shelby Slower or humour her website www.shelbyslower.com. Next episode, we're visiting an apartment all the way over in Queens, New York City, to meet associate editor for The Nib, cartoonist and illustrator and sufferer of cats, Matt Lipchansky. So, I mean, I, I love it here. It's my favorite city in America. I've always, my cat just opened the door with her face. Hi, Ophelia. Sorry. No, uh, she you're, stay. I mean, if, if you want to get the real verisimilitude of being in my studio, it is getting annoyed by this cat 45 times a day. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural, or find The Belladonna on Facebook, or why not all of these things? Until next time.